Hey guys, welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you'd like to support my work, please head over to thelouperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. You'll get to listen to my podcasts and watch my sketch comedy videos before I release them to the rest of the world. And you'll also have access to exclusive content for members only. And if you're looking for another way you can support me, you can do so by supporting my sponsors, Black Organic Cold Brew. Just head over to www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code LOU for free shipping. And if you're into CBD products, please check out Paloma Verde CBD. Head over to palomaverdecbd.com and use promo code LOU for 25% off purchases over $75. All right, here we go. Hey guys, welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. I'm so happy to be joined by Robert Trusinski. He is the editor of Symposium, as well as the writer, editor, creator of the Trusinski Letter. So make sure to check those out. And um, I've been I've been reading uh, your work, Robert, for for quite a while. And I think the first time that I came across you was with um, uh, you were you were writing some pieces for the Federalist, and I think that's, that's, that's that, right. That, that's where I started. And um, I know over the years you've you stopped writing for them. Um, we don't have to, you know, get into get into that. Um, but uh, I highly recommend uh, people check out your work and to follow you on Twitter as well. So that's where I got to say that right off the bat. So. I appreciate that. Yeah. And well, um, I've been a fan of yours, Lou. Uh, I've been a big fan of yours, Lou, ever since the uh, you came to us as Gary, the uh, the Trump defender, Gary, oh, Trump's God. biggest defender. Oh, that's that's right. Yeah, that was that was how I first that was how I first got to know first got to know your stuff, and I thought that was uh, that was because every one of us has uh, at least on, not even on the right. I think just everybody has been Gary at some point, right? The guy who's forced to defend something that he doesn't really agree with, but everybody else is being wrong too, right? right. My very first one of the first things I I, I showed up at college in 1987. I was right in the middle freshman in college right in the middle of the Bork hearings. You know, this is uh, Robert Bork, who was a Supreme guy nominated to the Supreme Court. He didn't get through. But there are these really contentious hearings. And I didn't like Bork. There were things I didn't like about Bork. But I was like, I was the anti-anti-Bork guy in the college dorm because it was, you know, there, so many of the attacks against him were also wrongheaded. So I was I was Gary for uh, <laughs> for my freshman year of college. So yeah, and for, the, for those of you interested in the video, it's uh, Stop Making Me Defend Donald Trump. And uh, yeah, and it was wild uh, when when we released that video, I didn't have like really any hopes for it. I was just like, okay, finally, we're able to, you know, put this one together and get it out. And then it, it really started resonating with people that I think are who, who find themselves in that position where it's like, hey, I, I don't like the guy, but you don't have to make things up about him. And, and yeah. it, was, it was a similar thing with with Obama, too. And I, I used to see that all the time. It's like mm -hmm. it's like, you know, instead of talking about, you know, making stuff up about Obama, you could, you could just talk about Libya and what yes. happened there. Like instead that's of talking about the birth certificate, instead of talking about the birth certificate, how about you talk about, you know, Billy Ayers and Reverend Wright and you yeah. know, these guys got guys got enough skeletons in his closet as it is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. And I, I, we've all seen that one meme where it's like, um, uh, uh, worst person in the in the world is right. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it's it makes so a good sad. point that you have to, oh, God, no, I have to, I have to agree with him. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that, you know, you know, you and I are, are similar in being weirdos in that <laughs> it's, it's sort of like, where, you know, where do we classify ourselves when, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I mean, you, especially you've, 
you, you know, you, uh, you've had run-ins with, with the left. I mean, some of your writing on, uh, on socialism in particular, that's what really, you know, got me interested in your work. And then, uh, you know, having these contentious, you know, uh, arguments with people on the right. And so how would you describe, you know, where you are in this whole, in this whole thing? Right. Yeah. So in the normal political categories, I'm, I'm sort of I'm an outlier because I'm 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 an atheist so I can't be conservative, right. and I'm a pro free marketer so I can't be quote unquote liberal or on the left, and uh, although I actually describe myself as liberal and I want to get into that in a bit, but um, I, I'm not really a I, I'd be closest to being a libertarian, but I'm too much of a hawk to be a libertarian. <laughs> uh, very specifically, I'm an objectivist. I, I'm influenced by the and, and agree with the philosophy of Ayn Rand. But that's you know this very tiny tiny subcategory that's not one of the uh, uh, wider political categories. I always like to tell people that you know so in college in, in high school I was the guy who said I'm was it uh, liberal on social issues and conservative on economic issues. More recently, I've been like, gravitating towards you know the classical liberal you know later on like, gravitate to the classical liberal label, which is the idea that you know I would be what counted as a liberal in the 18, in the nineteenth century and the eighteenth century. Uh, you know, a def an advocate of freedom in politics and freedom across the board in uh, uh, freedom in your personal life, freedom in, in your economic life. And I've sort of set out what I'm doing with Symposium magazine, the new publication I've started up, is I'm trying to reclaim the label of liberal because there's a lot of illiberalism out there on both the left and the right. And I think you know, I'm just sort of advocating the idea that liberals of all stripes uh, you know, even the conventional sort of center-left liberals and the center-right classical liberals and the libertarians, we should all be sort of gathering together and working together and having conversations together to try to strengthen the cause of freedom because there is a sort of authoritarian uh, style of politics that's rising up, you know, on both the left and the right, sort of the Bernie bro authoritarians and the uh, and the Trump authoritarians. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's, it's one of those things too that I find... Um, especially when it comes to, to matters of free speech, where there are people that I'm friends with that I have no idea what they think about economics or foreign policy, because all we keep talking about is, oh, man, do you hear so they're trying to get rid of so and so? Or can you believe that they're, you know, this book is no longer in print? Or can you believe what they're teaching kids nowadays? And it's, uh, and I, I don't know, I sort of, I sort of found that if, <laughs> Uh, if we can agree on the free speech issue, I think I think we could actually have conversations about the other stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the we can have conversations part is important because right. that's the fundamentality of free speech as a political issue, and I think also as a you know a cultural issue. I think there is an you know you hear sometimes the culture of free speech because there's a lot of things that people can do that are perfectly legal. It's perfectly legal to for for Twitter to you know block somebody's account because somebody said something Twitter doesn't like. That's mm -hmm. perfectly legal, but they should also, you know, there's a moral aspect or a cultural aspect to it that they shouldn't be doing it arbitrarily. They shouldn't be doing it to arbitrarily shut down. You know, they shouldn't do it without provocation, without some reason or standard or principle behind it so that they're not just shutting down discussion of important issues. And so, you know, the fundamental basic issue is, can we still talk? Can we still have a debate? Can we still have a discussion? And, you know, the temptation on every side, every side of politics for as long as I've been involved with it, which is a while now, uh, the temptation is always to win every argument by not having it in the first place, mm. right? So if you can, yeah. if you can rule the other guy out of bounds, 
oh, you're not going to listen to him because of such and such, you know, because uh, you know, this person isn't qualified to speak because they're white, or this person isn't qualified to speak because he's conservative, or this person is, you know, if you can, I'm sure there, and there are versions on the other, you know, this person, uh, don't listen to him, he's a never Trumper, or he's a leftist, or, or he's a liberal, whatever. If you can sort of rule somebody out of bounds from the beginning, before they even open their mouths, you know, you automatically win the argument because nobody's, you, you have, you've convinced your argument, your audience not to even listen to the other person. But the thing is that that's the cheap, easy way to win an argument. And it's a good way to perpetuate a lot of errors and a lot of falsehoods and a lot of misunderstandings and, uh, and to sort of run us off the rails and in the way that I think we see where it's happening right now. Yeah. And one of the recent pieces you wrote was um, in defense of the classics, which yes. I, I, I'm 39 yeah. and I'm just, I'm just thinking like, wait a minute, we have to defend the classics, you know, uh, and maybe you could talk a little bit uh, about about that piece and, you know, what ins what inspired it. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I, I came into that because I am a classical music guy. I'm a sort of a I'm, I'm even a classical music snob, actually. Uh, I'll, I'll be upfront about that. Uh, so I, there's a line from Tom Lehrer uh, that, the you know, the satirist where he referred once he did a thing about folk songs. And he referred once to rock and roll and other children's records. And I there's a, there's a part of me, you know, I grew up on <laughs> rock and roll, but I grew up on rock and roll. But there's a part of me that sort of says, yeah, to that line. And you know, so I'm a classical music guy. I, I, I'm a pianist. I, I do I pretty do pretty decently on the pianist. I'm a really terrible on the violin. Uh, but I, but I'm, a, I'm a lover of classical music. And, and the, the shoe I've been waiting to drop for a while is that classical music is racist. And it's just right. starting to bubble up right now. There's this whole sort of campaign. Uh, and it, it came out, there was a campaign against a German, uh, a German Jewish uh, uh, music theorist from the early 20th century, long, you know, guys long dead, but there's this whole campaign to sort of discredit him because he's racist and therefore his theories are racist. And he actually did express some racist views. And it's interesting, he was a Jew in Germany in the early 20th century, and his views were, his, his work was later suppressed and his, his family was persecuted by the Nazis. But he himself had this like this idea that the, the Germans were the perfect race. So it's, it's a very odd, complicated world we live in. Uh, but he had racist views and they're saying, oh, therefore, all this guy's name was Schenker. And all therefore, all of his theories about music theory need to be thrown out because they're all tainted because he had these bad views on, uh, uh, on, on this other issue. And it was done in this sort of ridiculous overstated way. Like, you know, his view on the relations of tones is, is, can, can I quote, is, can is I sully, but yeah, I, I yeah. want to quote that because, um, it, it, so you quote Philip Ewell, uh, is that a Ewell? Ewell, I think it's Ewell. 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 That's yeah. What Ewell. So, so the quote is, and I'm shaking my head for those of you just listening. I hope you can hear me. The wind just going as I shake my head. He, he writes as with the inequality of races, Shanker believed in the inequality of tones. Now, I mean, to be frank, what the fuck does that mean? You know, <laughs> well, as, as I point out, I mean, you, you could have just as well talk about you know the inequality of numbers. You know, yeah. that the two, three <laughs> right. is larger than two, and therefore that's racist. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a totally. There's no analogy there. There's no connection between those two things. But that's sort of what we do now. Is that the you know, the uh, everything's tainted by association. And that's what I mean by this thing about how you can win any argument you like, as long as you can rule the other side out of bounds to begin with. 
And you know, race is the favored version right now of, of doing that, of saying, oh, well, there's some association with racism here. Therefore, what you have to say on economics, what you have to say on um, science, what you have to say on the environment, you know, whatever topic it is, it's all ruled out of bounds. We don't even have to listen to your arguments or consider you because we've associated, we've, we've associated you in some way accurately or inaccurately with racism. But the, so the, the attempt here has been made to broadening beyond just this attack on Schenker to say, oh, well, you know, the classical music is just the musical preferences of, of white Europeans in the late 18th century. There's nothing special about it. Therefore, it shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't bother teaching it and elevating it and saying Beethoven is a genius. This is the specific claim this guy says to say Beethoven is a genius is racist because you are elevating him above all other types and styles of music uh, and regarding him as so important. And you know that that is inherently racist. And it, it goes back, as I mentioned, I'm an objectivist. I come from the sort of the Ayn Rand the corner of things. And it, it reminded me so much of a line that she has. It's actually from her notebooks when she's creating the notes for this character of Ellsworth Tui in The Fountainhead. And he's this sort of, uh, uh, collectivist socialist intellectual who's, who's just he's after power he's the power lusting intellectual who uses ideas as a way to disarm people so we can get power and he talks about and she, her notes on on two years that are that uh he says he's against rockefeller and morgan and those are the big industrialists of the late 19th century he says he's against rockefeller and morgan but he's actually against beethoven and shakespeare so the, the economic issues are just a, a front for the idea that he's against the idea of any extraordinary individual. And that resonated with, because you know, here are these people saying, you can't say Beethoven's a genius. And you also had, I came up with examples of people saying, we shouldn't be teaching Shakespeare in the schools. And it's the idea right. that if you affirm that these people were great and did great things that are valuable and, and of enduring value enough that we need to still be studying them today, that's unfair to everybody else. That's, and the, like I said, the current style of doing that that's popular is to say it's racist. Um, that's unfair to everybody else. And therefore, you know, these people have to be shoved aside in favor of marginalized voices. Um, and, and we can't affirm the greatness of these great works. Yeah. And, and in that piece, I mean, you, you go into real, real detail and it yeah. stuff that goes over my head because I don't know music theory and and I uh I tried I, I tried to sort of explain it in a more everyday way because I'm not I'm not a music you know I'm not I know people there are people who know a lot more about music theory than I do <laughs> I try to sort of translate it down as best I can to a way that that an average person I do a little sort of breakdown of Beethoven's yeah, fifth symphony the fifth, yeah and yeah. and um, and I think where, where it really hits is you know you um, you sort of, you know, go through the music and why, you know, why the music is great. But then also, I mean, if you if you look at the biography of Beethoven, yeah. what he was going through as a man yeah. at that at that time, losing his hearing and, and, yeah. and all that and, and managing, you know, pushing yeah. through and, and coming up with with something like that. Yeah, the, the greatness thing is, I, I mean, to me, it's just it's just it's just so evident that, yeah, there are people who are great at things you know like uh like for example like you know just to, to take like someone like a like a michael jordan like right, i am right. i am not the michael jordan of anything <laughs> there is nothing i do where people are like wow lou is a you know lose the jordan of that and um and it's it's interesting i remember i read um uh, uh tyler cowan i think he had a book about yeah. like a ode to big business or, or something and and he was 
uh, explaining uh, CEOs and CEO pay and mm-hmm. how how people can understand how LeBron James makes so much money, right? Because he's a great basketball player and people want to come the, and see him play, but they can't they can't understand how a CEO might you know garner the wage you know the, the salary that, yeah. that that he or yeah. she does. Because what they do is also great on a, uh, you know, um, it's a different field, but it's, a, but it's also great. Yeah, I, I think there are a few example, exceptions to that, like, you know, Steve Jobs. I mean, you, there are those mm-hmm. examples out there. It's like everyone knows Steve Jobs was this great visionary, did these things that nobody even thought of before. Um, and there you'll find people out there who will say, oh, he wasn't so great. You know, but every, I think most people know that, you know, the, the things he did, this whole series of incredible innovations that he fostered at, at Apple. So there are a few of those where it's more visible to the average person because you know you've got something in your pocket. Right. You have a supercomputer in your pocket, and you know that this person helped make that happen. Um, but you know, so if it's the CEO of uh, of Union Carbide, you have no idea what this person does. Right. And why does he make so much money? Um, even <laughs> though it, you know, it's it, it's probably you know it's an incredibly complex job. I mean, you know, major chemical company. There's a lot that can go wrong. Um, or Elon Musk, I think, is sort of the, you know, he has his fanboys out there. Um, Elon Musk drives me a little nuts sometimes because, you know, whenever he says something, it's like there's a 50-50 coin flip that it'll be either really brilliant and visionary or it'll be total flimflam. But but still, you know, the, the brilliant and visionary stuff is out there. You can see him launching rockets. So, right. you know, people sort of get that. But I think, like I said, you know, a lot of the what CEOs do or a businessman do is behind the scenes and you don't see it. And you typically... And a lot of times in the average person watching the media, they only notice the CEO when something goes wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. right. <laughs> so it's like, okay, you know, this, this Boeing plane crashed and the CEO stepped down because his planes were crashing. And so, you know, and even uh, that was the recent one from the last year or so. And, and the thing is the guy, it wasn't his program. He had just recently become CEO. There was no particular reason why he, he was specifically at fault for this, but he's the guy in charge. He's got to fall on his sword. And so you hear about, oh, the CEO, and so you think, oh, these CEOs are, are these, these miscreants. By the way, that's one of the reasons, by the way, that I think you get high CEO pay, because every time a CEO goes out there, he's taking a risk. You, know, you become CEO of Boeing. You're taking a risk. If something goes wrong, not only are you going to lose your job, but you may never get another job as CEO ever again, right? Your career is over because you're associated with this big failure, whether it was your fault or not. So that's another reason why you get the CEO. People say, why do CEOs, CEOs get paid so much even when they're failing? Well, they get paid because there's the risk of failure is huge, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to have that compensation of, you know, if something goes wrong, that isn't even my fault and I end up getting associated with it. You know, I want to make sure that I'm, I have some downside protection on that. And, you know, you're hiring people. If you're hiring a CEO, you're hiring someone who's good at negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> if he can't negotiate a good salary, he probably shouldn't be getting the job. But anyway, that. But I, th- I think the big thing is it's you know it goes back to Bastiat had this uh, the French economist uh, Frederick Bastiat, uh, early nineteenth century. I think one of the great uh, classical economists, and he wrote a book called "What Is Seen and What Is Not Seen," mm-hmm. and the idea is that people tend to judge things based on what they see. And not on the stuff that's behind the scenes or that's indirect or that is, you know, the far off consequences because you don't see them. They're off somewhere else. And so his example was, you know, the government taxes people and builds a bridge. And everybody says, oh, wow, look at this bridge. You can see that. You see that they've created this this bridge. And that's a great thing. He says, what you don't see is 
all the other things that would have been done with that money had it been left in the pockets of the people who, who originally owned it. Because you don't see that because it didn't happen. And so mm -hmm. you don't see the cost of that bridge. And so you tend to think that everything the government does is sort of free money coming down from heaven. <laughs> and you don't see where that money's coming from and what might have been lost because that was taken. Yeah. Uh, and I think something applies here when you talk about business and capitalism is that a lot of that stuff goes on behind the scenes where people aren't watching it, where the average person doesn't have the ability to, to grasp it. Whereas, like you said, LeBron James, you can watch it on TV and appreciate the, the nature of that skill. Yeah. And bring, bringing it back to the, to the classics, I mean, what do you think, um, what role has government played in, you know, perhaps diminishing uh, the classics? I, I'm, I, it's been a while since I've been in school. Um, but it, it seems like, uh, at least with, you know, government education, it's sort of going the route of, uh, let's get rid of the, let's get rid of Shakespeare. We don't really need Shakespeare right now. Um, let's, you know, uh, broaden, you know, the, the, uh, the reading materials to, you know, things beyond that. Well, I also think that even before the sort of modern wokeness where you're supposed to be, you know, reading other things before for the racial reason, you know, the racial politics sort of reasons, even before that, there was a dumbing down that was going on. Because I remember, like I said, I'm a classical music guy. I remember having classes when I was a kid in school, fairly young, where you'd have somebody come in and they'd play classical music and they'd talk about it a little bit. Uh, not deep explanations, but we were exposed to it. And I think that has diminished. One of the reasons it diminished was uh, there was sort of the counterculture of the 1960s, where that was seen as snobbish, as elitist. And we don't want to be elitists, right? And this even goes back to, you know, one of the reasons why folk music is associated with the left is there were leftists who said, well, folk music is written by the people. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and, and so therefore it's the people's music. And we have to emphasize that as opposed to this other stuff, which is done by elites. Um, but then in addition to that, what happened in the 90s is you had this sort of um, no child left behind and all the standardized testing. And that had, a, I think we're just dealing with the fact that has a devastating impact on the public schools because you had so much of the schools are organized around standardized testing that that determines the curriculum. And whatever's in the standardized test, that's what you teach to. And one of the things that's sort of gutted is it's gutted some of the arts and literature curriculum, things that are not immediately practical. I also see that happening on the university level because what happened is you know the, the price of tuition a college tuition has gone up so much that you know you get these people if you come out with a hundred thousand dollars in debt you better not have a degree in literature english literature or uh you know some sort of, sort of liberal arts degree that doesn't give you any specific skills you better have an engineering degree or a, a legal degree or, or something that's going to you know make you qualified to make enough income to pay back those student loans and, and that's a result, I think, of a sort of the a foolish sort of subsidizing, you know, we subsidize uh, federal loans and, and we subsidize education to make it cheaper. And the result was it actually got more expensive. Yeah, because <laughs> there's studies out there that universities gobbled up like 67% of all new student loan money gets gobbled up in extra tuition by the university. And so <laughs> you could borrow more money to pay for your school, but then it gets more expensive and you're, you're left with all this debt. Yeah. Uh, and you can't work your way through school the way people used to. You know, my uh, so my wife, uh, she's a former former dancer, 
and choreographer. Um, she went to she went to school. She went to the University of the Arts in, in Philadelphia and studied dance. And um, so when we started dating, I mean, for one, I, I was you know enraptured anyway because uh, you know dancer. Uh, yeah. And um, so I so she would take me to go to to go see dance. So I I would see you know modern uh, modern dance. I'd also go see um, uh, ballet and we'd be looking around and there'd be so many empty seats in the theater. And it's not like, it's not like these things were like tickets were so expensive that, you know, you wouldn't, you know, be able to, it, it was, you know, like a, a nice night out, you know? And, you know, we were talking and, and, it, and it sort of came down to the, you know, sort of the, like you were talking about before of people, you know, view, you know, like classical music as like the snob music. Right. And, and it's, it, and there's a similar thing happening in dance too, where it's like, Oh, we're sort of above this. Whereas when I'm there, I want to be an ambassador for this stuff. I want to, yeah. I want, I want to say like, no, no, you need to go and see live perform, live performance. You need to go see dance. You need to listen to Beethoven played live by a, by an orchestra. Like this will, you know, this is oh, what, yeah. this is the best that, that, that humanity has, has to offer. Um, and I wish there, I wish I was seeing more champions of that, you know, just more people speaking out and saying like, this will change your life. No. Yeah. I mean, I, my, my frustration is if you go to the opera, especially, you know, look around, this is now we haven't been to a performance in a while because, because of the pandemic, but you'd look around and, you know, I would, my wife and I would look around and we're like, we're the youngest people here and we're not that young anymore. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they'd have the buses, you see the buses pulling up from the nursing homes, uh, local nursing homes. You know, we said it's a familiar site. It's like, Oh yeah, there's the, uh, there, you know, we know the names of them now because you know they all the buses pull up and the people get out and they go into the opera or the the or the symphony performances, yeah. and uh, so that is sort of that that sort of aging of the audience. And I think it's because there hasn't been that, like I said, the ambassadors, the people going out there and exposing people to this. You know, the, people talk about how difficult it is to understand uh, Shakespeare because it has you know this Elizabethan style of language. Well, it's not that difficult. I mean, to translate thee and thou, it's, you know, it, it's not that <laughs> difficult. It's just, if you're not exposed to it, it's unfamiliar. Right. And, you know, I had the fortune of being exposed to this as a kid, partly in my schooling and partly at, mostly at home. Um, actually, we had a great local theater group that was like super hardcore. They did Shakespeare. They also did, they did Greek tragedies, but they did the Greek tragedies like in masks and with the chorus chanting in unison. And, oh, wow. you know, I got to college and I had this professor explaining, well, this is how they actually perform these things. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this you know, every summer for the last, you know, 10 years, I've seen them do this. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, so it wasn't unusual to me, but, um, you know, so just getting exposed to that stuff and getting regard, having that familiarity, especially when you're young, and I think that's something that's gotten sort of dumbed down out of the schools. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think some of the some of the blame for that also goes to so it, one of my projects that I want to do at some point is uh, called the death of the highbrow. Instead of charting how this happened, one of the ways it happened, I think, is that modernism came in with this whole new approach to art. And one of the things the modernists tended to do was they tended to want to sort of wipe out everything that came before them. Uh, and I, my wife went to a, uh, a modern architecture, a, a modernist architecture school. She went to uh, IIT, which is like Mies van der Rohe's program. So, you know, you, you went there to learn how to build a, a glass and steel ice cube tray kind of 
you know, a building. Uh, and she said, architectural history education sort of begins in 1880. And you go you forward from that, you, you know, everything before that is considered like not worth learning, right? And, and that sort of tends to happen I noticed at my kids' school to some extent that sometimes the art teachers would be like, you know, you start with Picasso and go from there and, you know, Michelangelo and all the great art, uh, you know, uh, all the great uh, David and Michelangelo and all the great art of previous eras isn't even presented. Oh, and so I think modernism sort of came in and it's, it's in its urge to present itself as the only alternative. It sort of wiped out some of the exposure to the earlier forms of uh or there are forms of art and narrowed things down and narrowed down the appeal of art because i also think that i'm kind of a critic of modern art and modern dance and things like that uh I, i'm open-minded to some of it but a lot of it tends to be like very you know it's it's weird and it's dissonant and um i, I particularly hate modern opera because you know dissonance in music is bearable unless it's an operatic voice and then it becomes utterly unbearable <laughs> yeah it's like if you think opera is screeching you should go to a modern opera and that's like screeching on steroids but um uh the so i think sometimes you know they, they sort of narrowed it down to only this sort of modern stuff is the is the high art and then the average person looks at that and says oh i don't i don't what's this what's this uh jackson pollock thing with a bunch of drips on the canvas i don't get it i'm not interested and they move on and so by narrowing it to just we're just presenting the modern stuff, it you you diminish the popular appeal, and then the whole thing sort of drifts away, and we lose this amazing heritage. Yeah, and and also it, you know, it's kind of it, it's it's very unfair too because you know the modern artist, they're you know whatever they're doing is re, is in response to the art that came before them that they studied. Right. So it's sort of like, no, no, no. Right. these people who are doing this stuff, they got to study all the classics. They got to go to art school and and, and to do all that. So it, it's sort of like the, um, you know, a similar thing happens when I remember seeing like some book list where it's like, you know, here are, a, you know, a hundred books that you, you really don't have to read. And it was obvious that the person who wrote this thing had read those books, had read, you know, uh, Lonesome Dove by um, uh, Larry McMurtry. And, ah, you don't have, to, there are other Westerns you could read. It's like, but you read that, you know, and to say, to tell like, especially a young kid who, you know, doesn't have yeah. the experience just because they don't have the experience to say, ah, you can forget about that. Don't, don't worry about that. Like what, one of well, the, the um, sorry, go the argument that really offends me is the idea that, well, we're only, there was some light in one of the, in the article I said it, I let a, a a librarian, a journal of library, a library journal, uh, journal of library science, or it's something like that, a journal for librarians, where someone was arguing that, well, I only assign uh, books to my students that are about people who are like them, people who look like them, who are from the same background. And I'm like, yes. well, that's the exact opposite of the point of literature and education is you're supposed to be broadening out and you're supposed to learn about people who don't look like them. You know, so yeah. if, if, you know, and that, that goes for me that I should be reading books about people from other cultures and trying to understand broaden my horizons. But, you know, the kids need Shakespeare and they need Homer and all that. So they have something that goes beyond. I mean, they know their own environment. They know the neighborhood they grow up in. They know right. the culture they come from. The importance of education is you broaden that out and they know everything. And I find it particularly weird with Shakespeare because, you know, Shakespeare is like the most translated and most adapted play, you know, author of all time. Uh, every culture, every language, he's hugely popular in India where they adapt him all sorts of different ways. 
Um, one of my favorite Shakespeare performances I ever saw was in London. And it was a performance of Twelfth Night, but it was set in modern India. And it oh, was wow. really fascinating watching it because in London, there's this large Anglo-Indian audience, right? That knows, and it's just, it was described as the bard meets Bollywood. <laughs> and awesome. so there was this whole Anglo-Indian audience. And the funniest part about it was there were moments where I, you know, there'd be a, it's a comedic thing. So there'd be a little joke and I'd be like, okay, that's kind of funny. And the people in the audience would be practically falling out of their chairs laughing. And I'm like, I realizing that there's like a level on this joke that connects mm -hmm. to their cultural background that, that I'm not getting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it made it, made it, I think, a fascinating experience. Like you could take Shakespeare and then put him into this other cultural context and get more out of him. Yeah, I, I uh, we saw, it was back at um, St. I think, I think it's called St. Anne's Theater in Brooklyn. And it was a, it was an all women production of The Tempest. And it takes place mm. in a women's prison. And it was phenomenal. It, it was so great. And it was, it was one of those, it was one of those things where it's like, yes, exactly. You're keeping, you know, you're keeping the work alive and doing it in a fresh way where people are, I'm glued, you know, to, yeah. to the scenes. And, and it, it was, uh, it was, it was incredible. And uh, it, it's funny you bring up uh 12th night because uh, my father-in-law, his, um, his good friend is a teacher in, in a, in a middle school. And uh, he had the idea of, you know, it would be great if uh, if Lou, as a comedian, could could speak to some eighth graders um, mm -hmm. who were reading Twelfth Night. Uh, so I got to do that. I got to speak to um, a, a number, I think maybe like five eighth grade classes mm -hmm. throughout the day. The one thing that was that was weird was that it was over Zoom. So it <laughs> yeah. was it was me kind of standing, you know, standing there speaking into the camera, and then everybody in the class had masks on. So I had no. I, the sound was was bad, and I had no clue if any if anything I was saying was was reaching them. And I I had to tell them like, look, you know, I I promise you guys, I am funny. I I swear, <laughs> which is a terrible thing that that you know that you could possibly um, uh, say this one. But for the most part, we we didn't really discuss Twelfth Night uh, that much. We ended up just sort of discussing my. Uh, uh, my time uh working on impractical jokers uh, which they were all very uh, very interested in. and i you know i understand that but uh when when i was in when i was in college i got to be in in king lear uh, so this is a story that oh, i yeah. that, that i told them and uh i was you know preparing that, that well-known comedy yes hilarious hilarious <laughs> and and this is how bad this is how bad king this is how bad the production was so uh no scenes were cut out right so I think it took us, over, I think it was like over three hours, right? That, that we did the, the play. Yeah. We did a matinee performance one day. So we did two, two performances of that in one day. Um, and I went to NYU and rather than use one of the NYU stages, for some reason, the people who produced it, the students who produced it booked, uh, booked a, a theater in um, uh, like the theater district of Manhattan. So it was like nobody there. You know, so it was very, very, very uh, low attendance. We're doing King Lear, and I played uh, the Duke of Cornwall, which uh, I don't know if, if you're familiar uh, with, with the play, but uh, I have one great scene where I knock one of the other characters to the ground. He's tied to a chair, and I yell at him. I say, out, vile jelly, where is thy luster now? And I cut his eye out. <laughs> and one of the joke, one of the one of the bits that we did is I think we put a grape on the end of the dagger 
So after that, like I fling it back and like hit somebody in the in the audience. I mean, that was that was a little bit of comedy there. And then afterward, the only comment I got on my performance was someone who said, you know, I never thought I'd hear Shakespeare in a Brooklyn accent. And uh, <laughs> OK, you've you got me going here, Lou. Yeah, yeah. because I, this is one of my crusades. OK, so um, I, this started with me. This I'm going to be total go total theater geek on you here. So this started when I discovered a guy named I think his name is David Crystal, who reconstructed what's called original pronunciation. So we're used to saying hearing Shakespeare as you know, to be or not to be. That is the question. You know, sort of. Right, right. So James, yeah, uh, the the rubber yeah, uh, was it uh, Gilgood? Is it? Yeah, yeah, Gilgood uh, or uh, uh, you know, Lawrence Olivier kind of style of right. performing. Well, that's not how people spoke in Shakespeare's time. That's a 19th century accent hmm. that became the standard. You could call it received pronunciation. So these guys went there, back there and they reconstructed as best they could original pronunciation of Shakespeare, and it's sort of this mix of like. Australian and Cockney and, you know, all these, it's basically like every, you can, it's, it's fascinating because you can see how every different English accent, you know, accent of English across the world, how they all came out of that, wow. right? It has elements of all of them. And it's fascinating. And one of the things that they discovered is that when you perform, they did this in the globe, if you perform an original pronunciation, it's faster and the, the plays are shorter. <laughs> so these you know four hour plays suddenly become a lot a lot shorter, and so the thing about that is that I think that sort of set off a little bit of a revolution in 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 British stage where it's okay to perform Shakespeare in regional accents because they're pretty much close to the original thing. So I, my crusade is Shakespeare in American regional accents, right? Because we're used to so Shakespeare, American Shakespeare is sort of the Orson Welles, you know. Two households, both alike in dignity, and fair Verona would be they are seen. You know that that kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? Right. This this sort of it's this sort of fancy American English, right? Right. But why not do it in accents? So, like for example, let's take that's the opening of Romeo and Juliet. So Romeo and Juliet. What kind of story is Romeo and Juliet? Oh, um, a what's it? Star-crossed lovers. Uh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no. Oh, oh, warring. Oh, oh, the warring. Uh, it's a mob movie. It's, it's a, a mob, mob movie, movie Lou. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's <laughs> two, good, yeah, it's two Italian families uh, right, in right, conflict right. with each other, you know, so I say set it in Brooklyn, right? Uh -huh. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona will they are seen, from old grudge break to fresh mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. You know, that, that you know, go, go full Brooklyn on it and do yeah. a Brooklyn, do a Brooklyn Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's already been kind of done with... Uh, um, uh, West Side Story and that sort of thing. But we should be doing this sort of thing with Shakespeare. We should be making it vital. It, it's so endlessly adaptable to everything. Mm -hmm. You know, do do it in do it in different accents. Like, is this a dagger I see before me? You know, <laughs> it, you could. Yeah, you yeah. could totally see like what like doing something in the Westerns. And we, we've all missed out. We have all missed out by not having Sam Elliott do Macbeth. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Yeah, who would be Banquo? I wonder. You know, <laughs> that'd, that'd be awesome. Um, you 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 brought up um, uh, David by Michelangelo, and uh, I, one one of the one of the best things that that ever happened to me and and my wife is um, my my good friend got married in Italy, right out of, right out out of uh, outside of Florence. So we got to spend a few days in in Florence, and I got to go see David for the for yeah, the first yeah. time. And I mean, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess I'm a little speechless just yeah. thinking back oh, pictures, where you see pictures and, and it's one yeah. of those things where it's like the 
this is better than the pictures. It doesn't really capture it. And, what and, I was struck by yeah. was the size of him. Yeah, he's a giant. Unreal, unreal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. David is the gi- is a giant. Where you wonder, right. like, what is you know, what is man? What would if he did Goliath? What would Goliath look like? And I just, I just, <laughs> I just, you know, found myself not wanting to leave. I just, yeah. I didn't want to leave this presence here. Uh, that, that you know was just unbelievable. And you know, reading, you know, reading your pieces about the classics, I'm like, I want, I want every kid if possible to be able to head over there and see for themselves what you know what uh you know what 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 history has to offer us and i when i was in college i got to study uh at the prado in in madrid and i mean talk about like a kid not knowing how good he had it you know just (laughs) looking back and like oh yeah i'm gonna take an art history class and then just go walk around you know caravaggio's and velasquez's and yeah and you know, and then think about it, you know, 20 years later and just pine, you know, just pine for that. Um, and know. I think the, you know, the approach here in, in terms of today's culture is that it should be additive, right? It should be, we, you know, by studying these doesn't mean you're denying or denigrating anything else that it should be about more. Let's have more. Let's right. have, we have this 5,000 years. There's all you 5,000 years of civilization to absorb and all these immense and, 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 and amazing achievements. All of that should be, you know, our, our, the job, especially when you're young, it should be to download all of that into your brain and expose yourself to it and to be able to understand it well enough to be able to come back and appreciate it. Uh, and it doesn't end when you're a student, but I think, right. you know, being a student gives you the basis. Like I, like I said, I, I, I I'm a pianist. I, I, pref- I'm, working on a bunch of Chopin pieces right now. I find I, I get so much more out of them now than I did when I was younger because there's so much emotional depth. You can't, you know, when you're older, you you get more of what she, of what uh, Chopin was trying to say. But I rely on the fact that, you know, I've got that foundation that I had of being a kid, taking piano lessons and 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 listening to that kind of music and sort of getting a basic grasp of the language of classical music that allows me then as an adult to go back and explore that in more depth and get, and get more out of it. Yeah. It's, and I'm afraid that, you know, if we take this subtractive approach where like, no, you can't study that, or you shouldn't be studying that. And it's bad to do that. It's, it's a very, this punitive aspect that we have to the culture war these days. Yeah. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason why, you know, you can't read, um, you know, uh, Shakespeare and then ask your professor, Hey, is there is there a story that, you know, about a person that looks like me? It's like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Here, here, you know, here's that story. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's narcissism, but just the idea that in order for you to, to be able to relate to a work, it has to be about somebody who, you know, either has the same amount of melanin that you have, or, you know, comes from the same part of the country or the world. Um, you know, there's yeah, a reason. Same there, accent, et cetera. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's a reason why, you know, like you were talking about Shakespeare, that it, you know transcends so many, um, you know, so many borders. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. uh, oh no, good. Sorry. I had a thought, but I think I got this. I got derailed a little. Um, no, so I, th- I think that the idea is that. Oh, yeah, what I was going to say is this, which is I have a plan for how the culture war ends, and <laughs> my plan is that culture wins, mm. right? <laughs> and what I mean by that is that. There, you know, there's always a culture war. You look at every era of history and there's always, you know, a, a sort of a, a mainstream culture and there's always young 
new people coming up and rising to challenge that mainstream culture. You go back to the Renaissance, there were, you know, Michelangelo's David, for example, was done, they actually put it in this main square of Florence facing towards Rome as a statement of defiance towards Rome. Yeah, that, that Florence had, you know, it's, and it was considered, a lot of the stuff going on in Florence at that time is considered uh, the products of humanism versus the sort of old medieval approach of the church. So there was a culture war going on there, but the, the form the culture war took was, okay, you built a sculpture, I'm gonna build a sculpture. You built a cathedral, I'm gonna build a cathedral. You, know, you, you wrote a play, I'm going to write a play. And that's what the culture war should always be. It should be each person creating new work that represents their viewpoint and tries to sort of appeal to people like, isn't my viewpoint so amazing? Isn't this place so great? Isn't this sculpture so beautiful that you should want to be sort of brought over to my side? Mm -hmm. That's what a healthy culture war looks like, right? So right. culture wins. You just, you create more and more culture with people competing to who can do the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and unfortunately um, it seems like it, it's a, you know, it's, it's a lot easier nowadays to tear something down than it is to put the work in and actually build something, build something great. And, and on a, uh, you know, a, a similar point. I uh, in a previous episode, I, I, I spoke with um with a guy about um, the trials and tribulations of the Simpsons Apu, and you know how it's like, wow, they really took a an amazing you know really a deep character, a deep cartoon character, and just tore him down. And it's like uh, rather than you know just saying like, okay, you 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 have that character now, we're gonna make something that we think is even more special mm -hmm. and that, that'll, that'll have even more uh, more resonance for people. Yeah, I wrote something a while back called The Theory of Wokeness Relativity. And it was <laughs> it was it was based on the fact there was, there was somebody who they'd found some comments that, that Albert Einstein wrote in his personal notebooks, never shared with anybody, but some things he wrote in his personal notebooks that seemed to be, he was traveling around the world and they seemed to be somewhat culturally insensitive remarks that he made. And so we had to cancel uh, Albert Einstein, because, you know, of these things. Uh, and uh, so I came up with my own theory on this called the theory of wokeness relativity, which is that the, the basic equation is that the wokeness of the observer is always greater than the wokeness of the historical figure. And you know, I actually get a little formula there, you know, uh, W-O uh, greater than W-H. <laughs> and the idea being that uh, all you have to do, you know, in this sort of wokeness approach, all you have to do to be greater than the greatest person who ever lived, all you have to do is to find some fault in that person that makes you superior and more enlightened. Mm. And you, know, you could have, you know, Thomas Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, helps create the first, you know, free uh, first nation based on individual rights, amazing achievement, amazing advance for human liberty but you find the things that are wrong with him and therefore he is the bad guy and you who have done nothing, you know, the average person criticizing him has done nothing to advance the cause of human liberty, but you're suddenly greater than him because, uh, because you can find the things to criticize him for. And even if they're legitimate things, it's that the idea of taking it out of, out of context of, uh, of saying that, you know, you are greater than the greatest because of your ability to criticize them and tear them down rather than because of something better that you and, and greater that you have done. And I think we need to get back to that attitude. I think that the wider context for this is, there's a great study done a number of years ago by some academics who talked about 
there are th three different kinds of societies based on what it is that is taken as the basis for giving you status and value, personal, you know, in, personal sense of your own value in those societies. They said, well, there used to be honor societies. Mm -hmm. So your honor, your reputation in the eyes of others was the most important thing. So sort of think the Renaissance, think Romeo and Juliet, right? Your honor. Um, think the mob for that matter. Uh, and <laughs> then, uh, then there was a society of dignity where you know Frederick Douglass could be a slave, but because he had a great mind, he still had dignity. Or somebody like um, uh, Martin Luther King, right? You, you could be fighting against injustice, you could be attacked, you should be thrown in jail, but because of the greatness of your own in, in interior soul, you still have dignity. And then they said that's been superseded by a society of victimhood, where being a victim is what gives you status and worth and honor in a society. So you have to find constantly finding grievances and looking for microaggressions and looking for ways that you have overcome adversity and been marginalized. And that is what gives you status. And that goes against the whole idea of create something greater to show how you're, how, you know, it, it goes, it goes towards the idea of you elevate yourself by finding somebody, finding fault in somebody else, rather than you elevate yourself by accomplishing something on your own. Mm -hmm. So I would say that what we need is a, a society, not a victimhood, but a society of achievement, where where you get status and a sense of internal worth is by pointing and saying, here's this thing I made, here's this thing I created, here's this thing I did, and here's the value of that. And that's what gives you worth and status, rather than saying, oh, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a marginalized person from such and such a background, or, you know, I went through this horrible traumatic experience, and that's what gives me value. Yeah, and it, and if you are you know sort of in a in a constant state of of victimhood, then it's sort of like well, getting out of bed is an achievement. <laughs> like you, you know, you just got out of bed. Oh my god, how did you even you know raise your head from your pillow? Like man, this is incredible. And I I um I spoke I spoke about this with a with a previous guest where when I was younger, I I was a lot more what was it I I identified a lot more with being Latino. You know, like I oh, insisted. Yeah. I insisted people call me Luis, you know, like that's my, you know, and um, my, I, I was, you know, uh, the, the history of my people, whatever the fuck that meant. But, uh, but then, you know, as I, as I got older and actually had some, you know, personal achievement and things that I've accomplished that, uh, you know, that, you know, set me apart from, you know, other people and especially other people named Luis Perez because, <laughs> man, if it, the amount of like credit checks and stuff that I like, we just bought a house. So, I mean, the the rap sheet on guys named Luis Perez, like this thick. And I'm like, you guys got to get your shit together, man, because you're really, you know, my credit score, it down for the rest of us. Yeah, yeah, man. My credit score is over 800. And you got I don't know what you guys are up to. Um, but but now it's sort of like uh, now the temptation is to sort of slip back. And be like, oh well, you know, because of my last name, I'm you know a, a marginalized person, and you know, and you know, and it and it it sucks that you know I think so many people are are taking that route rather than saying like, here's something I made, and yeah. this is something. Well, and and yeah. the interesting thing is that's kind of the flip side of the sort of alt right and then white nationalist types, because yeah. you know I, I run across those guys because they'll talk about oh yeah we're defending Western civilization, and you know it's like well their version of defending Western civilization is basically, I'm going to claim credit for all great things that white people have ever done. Right. 
in order to make up for the fact that I'm living in my mom's basement. You know, that that's very much the style of the the sort of alt-right or online white nationalist types is that they're, they're very chest thumping about the greatness of white people while they're living in their mom's basement. And it's 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 clear that the purpose of that is, you know, the purpose of racism for them is to give them this automatic sense of superiority that they can get without having to actually done having accomplished anything themselves. Yeah. Any, anytime I've had run-ins with them online, uh, I always, I always say, all right, well, show me your resume. I, I want, I want to see what you're, I want to see what, I want to see what that looks like. I want to see what that CV looks like, what your accomplishments are. Because like my, my dad is a, is an immigrant from Argentina. He didn't even graduate high school and he's a successful businessman. Right. I can't even imagine taking credit for the stuff, for the achievements of my father let alone achievements of a people, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't make any, any sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. And when people talk about privilege, I mean, I, I came from a sort of solid middle-class background, but I've always been very conscious because I know the history of the immediate, my parents and grandparents that, you know, I came from a solid middle-class background, but my parents didn't, and my, my grandparents didn't, my, you know, I got a grandfather who was basically a hillbilly wandering down out of the hills of North of Kentucky uh, into Cincinnati a uh, hundred years ago. And so, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact that there are people who came before me who worked and struggled and, and accomplished all these amazing things. And the way you honor that is to go accomplish as much as you can uh, on the, on that basis. You know, they did this so that I could go out and do, I could go out and do uh, and accomplish those things as well. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you um, describe yourself as an objectivist, um, you know, talk about a, a philosophy that is very much misunderstood or maligned uh, or, you know, straw manned uh, often. Uh, uh, how do you, how do you, if, if you have to explain like what objectivism is, like how would you, you know, describe that, you know, to the, uh, to the uninitiated? You know, say. Right. Yeah, so I've, uh, I should plug, I've got, I've written a book on that a couple of years okay. ago called, uh, So Who is John Galt Anyway? And it, it's sort of a reader's guide is a series of essays picking, analyzing different aspects, phil historical, philosophical, uh, literary aspects of the book. Uh, and one of the persistent themes in the book is basically, here's why, here's why the caricature that people have of Ayn Rand is wrong. And I'm going to, you know, go explain that at, uh, by looking at the novel. Like, for example, Ayn Rand hated poor people. Well, you know, in, in, she has all these, you know, her novels are studded with these people who started out poor and then, you know, worked their way up. I mean, this is uh, <laughs> a mainstay of it. And most of the villains are rich guys in Atlas Shrugged, especially. Um, so I would describe it though, the, the most interesting way to describe it is that Ayn Rand was really an inheritor of the enlightenment, the ideas of the enlightenment. And this is the idea of confidence and reason as a way of understanding the world uh, and a, an acceptance of individualism and of self-interest as a legitimate uh, moral idea that, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? We, they just put it, Thomas Jefferson, there was a, 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 a widespread enlightenment idea, so widespread, Thomas Jefferson put it in the Declaration of Independence, that the purpose of life is the pursuit of happiness. So there's a sort of an acceptance of self-interest and individualism there, that you, the individual, your job is to go out and pursue your happiness, to pursue prosperity and, and to make your life better. And then a, uh, a, an advocacy of a free society, an advocacy of a government that's strictly limited uh, and that you know, the rule for government should be that it's allowed to do a few tiny little things here 
and uh, the you know the rule is the government is very tightly constricted and only only allowed to do a few narrowly prescribed things. But the rule for citizens is we're not constricted. We're we're banned from doing a few narrowly prescribed things, and everything else is a wide open field for us to make our own decisions and make our own choices. And I think crucially, Ayn Rand's idea, you know, she was a, an advocate of reason. The idea is that we should be allowed to use our own reason. We, you know, we, we should be able to use the faculty of reason to make our decisions about how we're going to, you know, order our personal lives, how we're going to go out and make a living, how we're going to get paid, uh, how we're going to, uh, to run our businesses. We should be allowed to use that faculty of reason in order to improve our lives. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the, the, the very simplest explanation. There's a whole, you know, there's very technical philosophy behind it. Uh, but that's the simplest explanation. And it's this sort of attitude of your goal in life, your, your job in life is you, 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 are, you come here with the faculty to think, and you should be able to use that faculty of thinking to go out and improve your life and, and make a better world for yourself. How's that been working out for you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do okay. You, you know, do, right? um, I, I, I think of myself as a little bit like, um, you know, there's one line from the fountainhead that always... Uh, uh, strike comes with me, which is that, you know, when Howard Rourke, the hero of the fountainhead is asked what he wants to do, he says, I want to do my work my way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, talk about, you know, he goes through periods of struggle and poverty and, you know, loses jobs and things like that because he's trying to do that. But that's how he gauges his happiness is, am I able to do the work I want to do? And so, you know, I, there's, I, I make a lot more money if we're out there doing the, um, the, the sort of the grifter thing that we see these days of, you know, mm. the sort of Sean Hannity, uh, tell people what they want to hear, find a partisan, uh, uh, find, find a partisan bone to chew and go chew on it like a bulldog. That's, there's a lot of ways to make money on that. But the, the success that I choose, from, the standard I choose for my success is I get to wake up every morning and say, okay, I've got a really interesting article I want to write. Or I saw this thing, you know, this really interesting article somebody else wrote, I want to recommend that to move to my subscribers on my newsletter. Or, Here's a guy who wrote has something interesting to say. I'm going to commission him to write an article uh, on you know for 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 my magazine. So the idea of being able to just wake up every morning and decide I've got something to say. I've got things that I find are interesting. I've got a, um, a the the work that I really want to do that makes me excited and interested, and I get to do that every morning. And if I get to do that, and I don't have to go you know sell insurance in in New Jersey, um, then <laughs> I consider that to be a tremendous success. Yeah, right on. Well, no offense to people who live in New Jersey or sell insurance. Hey, man, I, I, I bought some insurance in New Jersey, and so far I'm very happy with it. Um, what would what would you you were talking about? You know, I, I want to do my work my way. Um, I wonder if I, I think I, I might recommend this to objectivists is um, start quoting Sinatra. You know, I did it my way. <laughs> did it my it, way. It yeah. seems One like of my favorite th songs, by the way. Yeah, yeah. How do you? Um, yeah, well, where does like someone like Sinatra fit in? You know, with <laughs> classical and, uh, and all that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, like I said, it's, it's additive. It's not exclusive. It's right. like, I, I listen to classical music. I, you know, I grew up on rock and roll, so I've got my favorites. Um, I, yeah, the eighties was a good era actually, if, if you ask me, but you know, I, I have, I have a line I always get to my wife, which is uh, our music was so much better than that noise. The kids are listening to these days. <laughs> and you know, that's every generation says that, right. You know, yeah. Our music was so much better you know, that, that, that we don't, I don't get what the young kids are listening to. And that's a natural process that the, the popular music of your era has certain associations. So I, I, I'm not going to say the music of the eighties was better than everything else objectively, but 
I, I, I grew up on it, so it means something to me. But uh, yeah, and I'm a huge Sinatra fan. So, you know, and I, I've, in, in another life, if I had more time, I would do a classical music podcast. I may get around to it eventually. But one of the things I want to talk about in that is the difference between classical music and popular music. And the, you know, the, uh, the, the short answer is classical music is different in that it's more complex, but there's been huge interplay between the two of them mm -hmm. through all of history. You, know, you have all these great classical music songs that are based on a tune that some, you know, the, the composer's walking along and he hears some shepherd, you know, humming a folk tune. And he says, oh, that's good. Let me use that. And then he goes and develops it and makes it more complicated and, you know, and uh, uh, varies it and adds all sorts of complexity to it to make it into classical music. But you know, they've, there's been an interplay between the two for as long for for as long as there has been music. Yeah. Well, if you, if you ever get so, to I, do, I think the whole approach is. Yeah, I, I was yeah. just going to say, if you ever get to do that podcast, please do it with the piano because I think that. I'm, oh yeah, I, yeah. I, I absolutely love. Um, I, I'm not a, I'm not a musician. I love when musicians are able to break down what's going you know what's going on uh, under uh, beneath their fingers. Um, I, I recently watched a. a uh, a Dick Cavett interview with uh, Paul Simon. So obviously it was from late sixties or early seventies and Paul Simon describing, you know, describing how he came up with um, uh, Mrs. Robinson and how he's, he was working on a song that I think would later become like bridge over troubled water. Um, and I think he was stealing from some classical composer and all that it was, it was super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the, the thing I, I, if I do it, it'd be, I'm an amateur. Uh, pianist. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I, there are limits to my skill, but uh, I have a shame, a bit of a champion too, of that sort of amateur, of amateur performance. I think too many people, you know, they take piano lessons in school, mm -hmm. you know, when they're kids and they get to a certain point where, you know, there's the weeding out that happens uh, when you're out 16, 17, 18, where you're either going to go on to do this professionally or you're not. And when, if you're not, they tend to drop it. And I did that for about 20 years. And then I, I, well, basically I, my first son was born and I decided I don't want my kids growing up thinking, you know, music comes out of this little, this little metal box that you have in your pocket. Mm. I want them to know that you, you, it actually comes from an instrument and you could play it. So I got a piano and got back into it. And um, uh, I'm, I'm a big champion of the idea of, of amateur performance of music because uh, it could, puts you in touch with the music in a way that uh, just listening to it on the radio or listening to it on your iPod or whatever doesn't do. Right on. I have a, I have a couple of guitars that are, in, that are full of dust in box <laughs> in, in, in guitar case. I almost call them that they're in coffins. I need to dig, <laughs> I need to dig them up and hopefully I'll, I'll get to, uh, uh, to play uh, again one day, Robert. Uh, thank you so much uh, for those of you uh, looking to check out Robert's stuff. Uh, check out uh, symposium as well as the Trasinski uh, letter. I'm going to take that back. For those of you looking to check out Robert's stuff, check out symposium as well as the Trasinski letter. Thank you so much for watching and or listening to my podcast. If you'd like to support my work, please head over to theluperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. And another way to support me is by supporting my sponsors, Black Organic Cold Brew. Head over to www.blbckbrew.com and use promo code Lou for free shipping. And if you're into CBD products, please check out palomaverdecbd.com. Use promo code LOU for 25% off purchases over $75. All right. Bye.